Welcome back. Got your shaken espresso, iced peppermint matcha, how about a piece of lemon almond pound cake? All set? Alright then, let's get started. Welcome to Inspired Word Cafe. I'm your host, Shimshon Obadia, they them, and with me today is Emmett McMillan, he they. And this is your monthly podcast of poetry, prose, and all the delicious goodness of the written word. Here we shine our coffeehouse spotlight on writers whose work resonates with us and does some good in being read. These are the words that inspire us. Now, if you just can't get enough IWC, feel free to go back in your podcast app and listen to all of our past guests and the inspiring words every single one of them has brought to the cafe. Like today's guest, who we're absolutely thrilled to have joining us directly from unceded traditional and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. In the cafe today, we've got Rita Wong, she they, a poet scholar who attends to the relationships between water justice, ecology, and decolonization. She has co-edited an anthology with Dorothy Christensen entitled Downstream Reimagining Water, based on a gathering that brought together elders, artists, scientists, writers, scholars, students, and activists around the urgent need to care for the waters that give us life. A recipient of the Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize and the Asian Canadian Writers Workshop Emerging Writer Award, Wong is the author of Current Climate, Wilfrid Laurier University Press 2021, Beholden, Talon Books 2018 with Fred Waugh, Undercurrent, Nightwood Editions 2015, Perpetual Nightwood Editions, also in 2015, with Cindy Mochizuki, Civil Unrest from Line Books 2008, with Larissa Lai, Forage from Nightwood Editions, shortlisted for the 2008 Asian American Literary Awards for Poetry and winner of Canada Reads Poetry 2011, and Monkey Puzzle, Press Gang 1998. Wong works to support Indigenous communities' efforts towards justice and health for water, having witnessed such work at the Peace River, the Wedzin Kwa, Ferry Creek, the Columbia River, the Fraser River, the Salish Sea, and the Arctic Ocean watershed. They understand that when these waterways are healthy, life, including people, will be healthy too, and that we cannot afford to endanger and pollute the waters that sustain our lives. For more from Rita, you can follow her at rrrwong on Twitter and get their latest on Instagram at mycarizalwong. And all the links from this episode can be found down below in your show notes including links to some incredible work Rita will be discussing with us today, projects she's involved in, and of course their inspiring publications, which you can get from booksellers coast to coast to coast. Though we're pretty partial to you requesting a copy from your local independent bookstore. Now, Rita Wong, welcome to Inspired Word Cafe's podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Shimshon. Nice to meet you. Um, I think I'll get started with a piece called um, Burnaby Mountain, uh, Lakwaitan. It's a prose piece that's appearing in um, the Capilano Review's 50th anniversary issue. And um, I haven't been writing a lot of poetry these days. I've been more um, focused on, I think, um, 
how to respond to the climate crisis that we're in. And uh, poetry is part of that work, but I feel like it needs to be in conjunction with a lot of other things as well. Thank you. And I want to say what a treat it is when we have someone who we we know for for one genre, uh, in your case, having known your work for, for your poetry, and then getting to see the different things that that someone like yourself writes. And so I'm just so, so thrilled to be treated to some of your prose today. Well, it's an honor to share it. So I'll just get into the piece. Named for the peeling arbutus tree, Laklaquaten is a place where I have seen and eaten salmon berries, thimble berries, also plum, blackberries, and more. I've even seen a coyote and once a bobcat near the Coast Salish Watch House, a 20-minute walk from the Simon Fraser University campus on Burnaby Mountain. The Tselwatuth, the people of the inlet, did their own comprehensive environmental assessment of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion in 2015, outlining the unacceptable risks associated with the project. There's no consent and no social license for expanding a pipeline that traps us into accelerating climate crisis. Principled opposition to the pipeline expansion from people who understand its dangers has led to hundreds of arrests, including mine. Still, at a crucial moment, just as Kinder Morgan withdrew, putting the pipeline expansion into question, the federal government purchased the pipeline using taxpayer dollars to bail out this American multinational corporation and usher us into a new phase of the petrostate. The Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish nations had illegitimate permits quashed by the Federal Court of Appeal in 2018. Canada then threw more illegitimate permits around, removed the avenue of appeal, and continued their colonial bullying as usual, betraying our public interest while citing so-called national interest. Canada is violating Indigenous law and natural law. Indigenous law was already here before newcomers arrived on these shores, and it respects natural law in a way that colonial laws are arrogantly and dangerously disconnected from. The Coast Salish Watch House at the east gate of the Trans Mountain Tank Farm is guided by the Coast Salish law of Natsamat, one heart, one mind, one spirit. We are all related. Raised with blessings from Coast Salish elders and the support of thousands of people who walked up to the mountain in March 2018, the Watch House is a reminder to align our spirits with natural law. Years ago, I had the good fortune to hear Lee Miracle tell an audience at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre that when we're on Coast Salish land, we are Coast Salish citizens with the responsibility to respect this land and its original people, whether or not we understand this or have been taught this. We still have this responsibility. To me, this is natural law, this spiritual responsibility to care for that which gives us life. As Reuben George, the manager of the Tselitu Sacred Trust, puts it, we have a reciprocal relationship with the land and water. Another entry point into natural law is basic physics, chemistry, and biology, all of which are telling us to take climate destabilization seriously as a threat to life as we know it on this earth. Unlike Canada, which is slipping and sliding all over its oily talk on reconciliation, I take the responsibility to be a good relative to the Coast Salish peoples seriously. The original peoples of this land have my respect. Unlike the pipeline and its pushers, this respect is something that cannot be purchased. It can only be freely given. Thousands of trees that were needed to cool the city of Burnaby have already been clear-cut in the last two years. Thousands more are in imminent danger of being killed, wrecking ecosystems that people have been trying to heal for decades, such as the Brunette River watershed. 
This is criminal negligence from a corporate captured government that is leading us towards mass extinction more quickly through poor decision making. A pandemic came along to stop the madness, but Transmount continued to push the pipeline anyways, violating WorkSafe guidelines in their haste to destroy the land and spreading COVID-19 through its work camps. I remember walking around the Burnaby tank terminal in 2018 and finding a flicker feather on the ground. Today, the flickers are long gone, pushed away by the din of heavy trucks and the loss of trees. I estimate that the average temperature along the Trans Mountain Trail has increased an average of two degrees due to the loss of tree coverage that used to cool the area. Noise levels these days are often through the roof. Joggers, dog walkers, and elementary school kids go past the suburban sacrifice zone day after day. Cognitive dissonance becomes normalized as trucks cart out dead trees and dirt that used to keep the mountain alive and safe for the children to breathe as fresh air. Up north, vicious rare cancers continue to spread in the communities poisoned by the tar sands. Down south, the inlet remains in peril, as does the ocean that would acidify even faster if this pipeline expands. The tree that used to house a red-tailed hawk's nest, gone. Thousands of cedars gone in the last couple of years. Trucks taking them away, hiding the evidence of what the mountain once was, turning what had been healthy soil into erosion and bearing concrete disaster. Eagle Creek used to gurgle down the mountain, swelling with rain and thinning with sun, buried into a culvert in the tank farm, silent as dry death. A pipeline expansion is a death trap, a one-way ticket to mass extinction. The Burnaby Fire Department has pointed out that in the event of an accident or explosion, residents of Burnaby, including SFU students, staff, and faculty, will be in immediate peril. Trudeau threw millions of dollars at Burnaby for a new fire hall so that some Liberal MPs could get re-elected in 2021, but they failed to stop the threat at its source, the carbon bomb that no one can afford to be extracted from the tar sands. Throughout the pipeline route, resistance remains strong in spirit. Chapukmuk land defenders uphold their responsibilities to care for the land. Cold water stands guard for sacred rivers. The tiny house warriors rise up against invasive man camps. Courageous twin sisters stand against the twinning of the pipeline, holding up their family legacy to unsettle Canada. They threaten to jail us for caring for the land while they turn a blind eye to their violation of indigenous law and natural law. Natural law is the bottom line, not the imaginary profits that will never come to pass once this pipeline becomes a stranded asset. The petrostate stinks more and more. Injunctions are a racist tool of a racist state that prioritize corporations and compulsive resource extraction rather than the multitude of kindred lives held sacred by indigenous land protectors. Trees are helping us get through this pandemic. Trees are keeping us healthy in these times. We can still hug trees when we can't hug each other. No one wants to hug a pipeline. No one wants a pipeline to poison the Salish seas. Trees are prayers. And prayer doesn't mean you stop trying everything else. If anything, you try everything and more. And some of what has happened over the last number of years is organizing to deny the social license for expanding pipelines, supporting fossil fuel investment campaigns, making art to stop the pipeline. There's an excellent film called Coextinction, um, reaching hearts and minds through social media and storytelling. Kaya George's articles in Teen Vogue come to mind. Occupying trees. Courageous souls have been spending many months up in the trees, preventing them from being clear cut. 
bird watching, something as simple as nesting hummingbirds stopped the pipeline clear cuts for about four months last year. Monitoring the destruction inflicted by the pipeline and holding TMX accountable to the 156 conditions that the Canada Energy Regulator is failing to enforce. When loopholes happen, as they do all the time, we have to keep reminding them that they're repeatedly and systemically violating regulations and bylaws. Groups like Mountain Protectors and 1308 Trees have been doing this. People have been lobbying MPs and the federal government, refusing to let them get away with greenwashing this acceleration into mass extinction. Um, there have been creative ideas to turn the tank farm into infrastructure that actually addresses the climate emergency. Those tanks could be repurposed as anaerobic digesters, for instance. There's a project in Auckland that turns food waste into biofuel and fertilizer using those kinds of large tanks. People have been going to court, doing jail time, and more. Um, I invite everyone to offer whatever skills and gifts you can. Everyone's ideas and actions are welcome and needed. So after drilling under the Fraser River to expand the pipeline, Trans Mountain announced in January 2022, just this year, that it had to relocate and redrill 350 meters of tunnel. Threatening the river's health with its trial and error approach and its disregard of its own consultant's advice, Trans Mountain requested to the Canada Energy Regulator, or CER, to expand its drilling. Despite sinkholes, flood damage, and more signs that this is dangerous, the CER just went ahead and rubber stamped the um, expansion of the drilling. Instead of stopping this violence and this reckless refusal to respect Indigenous knowledge, Trudeau threw 30 million at the city of Burnaby for a new fire hall to clean up the mess if an oil storage tank on Burnaby Mountain's tank farm explodes. But there isn't enough money in the world to protect Burnaby residents from disaster or to clean the Salish Sea if a tanker leaks, or to protect us from the acidification of the ocean if all of that oil is burned. Even if no accidents happen, we can't afford this pipeline expansion. When so-called government leaders fail us, we must still protect the land. How many floods, forest fires, and heat waves does it take for people to learn to listen and respect the land? To remember our first mother, the earth, lays down the law that matters. Natural law is more powerful than boom and bust human-made power trips. I'm grateful to live in a place where Coast Salish ancestors have the first word and will have the last word, Natsamat. So that first piece is uh, just a little bit of what I've been um, witnessing and going through in terms of what's happening here in Vancouver and Burnaby around the tank farm um, and the pipeline expansion. Um, and I should have started by saying, acknowledging that I am living on, coming to you today from Tselvatus, Squamish, and Musqueam lands, and that the land acknowledgement is important to follow up with action, with relationship building, with um, whatever we can uh, to basically build a better relationship than colonization would have allowed. Um, and there's a lot in that piece that I'm happy to talk with you about, but maybe I'll just read the second piece as well, and then uh, we can get into a conversation. So though I live in Vancouver and I'm very grateful to uh, be down here, um, I realize that um, the city's infrastructure has an impact on places far away and up north that we may never, many of us may never see. And one of those places is the Peace Valley up in northeastern BC. Um, 
So back in 2015, I was up in the Peace uh, area for uh, a decolonizing water bush camp. And I happened to just be there by accident um, when BC Hydro started cutting down trees. And so this piece comes out of that experience um, and that I've been basically paying attention to what's going on up in the Peace ever since. Um, this piece is called Blueberry River. And it starts with a quote by Gerald Davis, who's an elder from the Blueberry River First Nations. Gerald says, They polluted our country so bad, we cannot go out there by the creek and make tea. We cannot drink water anywhere in northeastern Peace River. And another important thing, too, is the berries have all disappeared. There's no berries around. The Blueberry River? They call it Blueberry River because of blueberries. So today, there's nothing. A blueberry is a small, sweet medicine, a humble, watery globe, so fragile and so necessary. Blueberry is also a mighty First Nation. I remember spending time along the banks of the Peace River, watching a beaver build its home, tasting the fresh, clean water of rare tufa seeps before they were destroyed by BC Hydro, watching the eagles soar above us as we sang for the river's life. How long does it take for a highway to kill an ancient forest? One year, 100 years, 200 years? We are learning through trial and error, mostly error. Are we learning? Cumulative impacts have taken us into climate, climate destabilization, heat waves, intensifying forest fire seasons, polluted air, and poisoned water. This August, each inhale the smoky one for young lungs. Capitalism denies our reliance on the earth, refuses reciprocity, puts us on a collective death spiral, prioritizing consumption to the point of collapse. Can cumulative impacts change this trajectory? Can cumulative impacts restore the land's health and the people's respect for the earth? If so, what would such cumulative impacts look like? Blueberry River opens a path I am grateful for the determination and strength of the Denizá people in northeastern so-called British Columbia, who are holding the crown accountable for its actions. Denizá hunters, dreamers, mothers, children, elders, leaders, and healers. On June 29, 2021, the Blueberry River First Nations won an important legal victory. Suffering from the cumulative impacts of oil, gas, forestry, mining, hydroelectric infrastructure, agricultural clearing, and more, Blueberry sought and received an acknowledgement that the province of BC has breached its treaty responsibilities and that it must not continue to authorize activities that breach Treaty 8. The promise of the treaty was that Denizá people would be able to continue their forest and river life, hunting and living with the land for as long as the sun shines, the rivers flow, and the earth remains. Judge Emily Burke recognized that a tipping point had been reached Denizá people can no longer practice their culture the way they used to, due to widespread and intensive industrial damage to their homelands. Blueberry's reserve has been nicknamed Little Kuwait because it has been lit up and poisoned by fracking flares. Can Blueberry and the Peace Region be healed? First, the violence and abuse of power have to stop. Violence against the land is violence against the people. Clear-cutting trees is violent. It is indiscriminate. It disrespects life. Logging can happen in a way that is selective, respectful, and sustainable, but this has not been happening in BC for the most part. 
So what would cumulative impacts in the right direction look like? Trees are one answer, one key. Trees, their death on mass that is, connect the destruction inherent to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, the Site C Dam, logging at Ferry Creek, the Coastal Gas Lake Pipeline, and other resource extraction projects. Across BC, millions of trees that we need to cool the climate are being cut down at the absolutely wrong moment. This is a cumulative impact, and replanting them might not be enough to reverse the harm of killing the trees while they were old and sustaining a complex network of life. There's no guarantee that young trees can or will survive the climate extremes we increasingly face. Still, stopping the clear-cutting would be a step in the right direction. In the lengthy court case Yahi versus British Columbia, Blueberry reminds the court of, quote, the need to leave areas fallow for rejuvenation, close quote. Areas that were clear-cut and poisoned as a result of industry were not empty or neglected. They were respected areas given space by Indigenous people, a practice that colonizers didn't care to understand. Denizah people conducted seasonal rounds, visiting different areas, and only taking what they needed, generation after generation. They cared for the land. They still care for the land. Healthy hunters are the sign of a healthy land. As the court decision notes, elders spoke of the bush being their store and the wildlife their groceries. But the connection between blueberry and the animals they harvest runs deeper than sustenance. One of the most important aspects of Deniza identity is the maintenance of a relationship between hunters and the spirits of the animals they hunt. Hunters dream their prey and animals willingly give themselves to hunters who uphold their responsibilities. The judge also noted that the Denizah's freedom was important to them, and they spoke about it regularly. The land is under siege. Biodiversity is under siege. How long does it take a dam to kill a species? Track the caribou and find out. Trace the path of the moose that are missing in action. Families that used to rely on a dozen moose in a year are now down to two, if that. Track the trout that they plan to truck past the sightsee dam and see how long that expensive and insane plan goes on for. Watch the eagles, necessary guides and teachers who are losing their nesting trees. Up in the Peace Valley, forests are being clear-cut the equivalent length of the area from Vancouver to Whistler. Billions are being wasted on destroying a precious ecosystem, rich wildlife refuges, sacred burial sites, rare northern wetlands, fertile farmland, and more. It is a heartbreaking mistake, one that Dunaza seers have foretold will end in failure. Two landslides have occurred near the dam site since BC Hydro started this disastrous project. When will the next landslide be? I have more faith in landslides than governments, unfortunately, to protect us from the site sea dam. A watery globe, so fragile and so necessary. Where a blueberry grows or doesn't grow is an indicator of health. So is a healthy moose liver and lichen on a tree. So much subtlety in a forest, so much medicine, stupidly destroyed by brutal colonial extraction. Down in the unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Selwatith lands, also known as Vancouver, we are connected to the Peace Valley because of the previously built W.A.C. Bennett Dam and the Peace Canyon Dam, which provide roughly a third of the electricity we use. The grid connects us to a history of attempted genocide of Indigenous peoples, the flooding of vast areas of land, 
intergenerational trauma, the displacement of people and animals from their homes, the drowning and death of countless animals, gestured to through a meaningless apology from BC Hydro as they prepared to flood 128 kilometers more of sacred places. With a flick of the light switch, I am connected to this violent history, which I cannot change. But I can decide how I respond to this history, and I can refuse to continue its violence and injustice. We can do this by stopping the Site C Dam, by recognizing how the Peace Valley in its natural state is worth more than a mercury-poisoned reservoir to pump electricity at a loss, since it will never recoup the expense it will take to force the dam on a land that doesn't want it. More Dunazah people will be back in court this year with the West Moberly First Nations seeking to halt the Site C Dam. Cumulative impacts can and must be turned around in the right direction. I don't know if humanity has enough time to achieve this, but I know this is what we need to do for our own humanity, even if we run out of time. To become good relatives and good ancestors, we have to stop destroying biodiversity. We have to protect the land and watersheds, which is also to protect ourselves. This is the best solution to the climate emergency facing us. In the long run, the earth will have the final say. My prayer is for humans and our so-called leaders to listen to the language of the earth, to truly care for the health of her waters, to respect and protect the land that gives us life. May my life protect the Peace Valley. I offer this prayer for its life. Oh, thank you so much for sharing those two pieces with us today. Uh, that was just an absolutely wonderful powerful and moving uh, experience to, to get to hear that out loud and to have you share your prose with us and the the incredible and inspiring words that they bring. Well, thank you for listening. It's hard to bear witness to the scale of destruction, but I feel very strongly that it's important to not look away, um, to, as Donna Haraway would say, stay with the trouble. And I feel like you really do that with these two pieces and that staying with the trouble is not always easy for sure and bearing witness as you just brought up is an extremely hard place I think for a lot of us to be where we are aware of this kind of existential collective anxiety that's been building up around this climate crisis and Sometimes watching and observing and engaging with that can feel like it is a hopeless effort, but is still something that needs to be done. And uh, I believe can be done with great beauty, as I think that your two pieces just showed us. Uh, even though these are prose pieces, being a poet, I feel like you have brought in some of the beautiful rhythms and flows of poetry to bear witness in more than just a literal direct one-to-one -one observation, but bringing in an emotional depth that really helped both of these resonate on so much more of a deeper level for me as I was reading it. And then again, now just hearing this from you, I was wondering if you would be able to start us off by talking about what it's like bringing that kind of deepness 
to your prose, and especially when it comes to something that can be quite emotionally draining for a lot of us to engage in, yet also refuel that while you bring all of these beautiful images and phrasings to uh, such such a topic. Yeah. Um, I think that sense of anxiety or climate grief is pretty common. Um, and uh, there's a woman named Ashley Consolo on the East Coast who's done a lot of work around it and um, has written about how it's important to name the grief and the feelings in their fullness, but to also figure out ways to act on it so that that energy doesn't just kind of get stuck in your body causing you misery, but that you release it in uh, or transform it into the world in ways towards the kinds of solutions that we need to build together. So I'm always curious about what can we do together that we're not able to do alone. And I think there's times when you need to be alone, like that depth you're talking about comes from spending a lot of time working through this and processing it, right? Um, but at some point you need to reconnect with other people and and show up, you know, when there, when things happen and pay attention and stay connected because it is that connection that really I think is so important. Um, I can't stress how important it is enough, I think, um, to not give up hope. Um, and, you know, uh, Rebecca Solnit recently was saying how, you know, hope isn't the conviction that things are going to turn out the way you want them to, but hope is the commitment to act in ways that support that path, whether or not you achieve it. Like, you, you have to try your best. <laughs> you know, like, hope is a, you know, another way that people have said is that hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up, that it gives you energy to do whatever you see needs doing that isn't being done at the moment, right? Um, and so I think, you know, I've been lucky to have a poetic practice that's given me, I think, the time and the capacity to just stay with the trouble, right, and and not be buried under it. It's, it is, I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, it's easy to feel despair. And quite frankly, when we look at what we're facing, uh, on a scale, um, on a massive scale, like I, I understand why people feel hopeless or or don't want to deal with it. But I, but I also think about that process people go through when we have to deal with something hard, like that that acronym DABDA. So you go through denial, you go through anger, you go you get try to make bargains, you go through um, depression, and you finally reach that stage of acceptance, right? And so I think that um, getting to that point of going past denial and getting into acceptance and just showing up because you need we need to show up for each other whether or not we're able to avert the kinds of disasters that are increasingly frequent um, with climate crisis. Um, we're going to need to get better at protecting the environment and the land than we have been. And I don't know how much time we have. Um, I was at a fundraiser once where David Suzuki was like, we're like that roadrunner and the coyote, you know, the cartoon and the coyote's chasing the roadrunner. The roadrunner is able to stop like that, but the coyote has too much momentum and falls over the cliff. Our society is like that coyote. It's fallen off the cliff already, right? But how far it falls, whether it falls two inches or whether it falls two miles, you know, that's still up to us in terms of what we do. So I think now is a really good time to not give up <laughs> and to keep paying attention and speaking out and trying to make, you know, a lot of it feels tiring and frustrating, I'll be frank. 
but there's also been a lot of joy uh, in the work as well. Like um, just yesterday, I was at a rally, uh, the global climate strike, um, and it was organized by a bunch of youths, like Youth Stop TMX, the Sustainability Teens. This is down at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Um, and, you know, like the youth get it, like, and as, you know, as somebody in their 50s, I feel like I don't want to leave a world of disaster to the next generation. Like, I'm doing my level best to not do that. But we need, you know, lots of other people to do that as well. And so I think connecting with the youths is a really good way to keep that energy going, too. I just I love that, um, especially because it feels to me when hearing these pieces and reading them, that there really is that joy-fueled persistence throughout both of these and in a lot of ways um just kind of linking back to to your poetry really briefly it feels like that has been a motivation throughout a lot of your work now i'm thinking of uh some of your more uh overtly uh environmental poetry but i think even in some of your work that is more uh, introspective and focused on identity, uh, like like some of uh, the work you had even in going all the way back to, to Forage, uh, which, which was my personal uh, first introduction to your work, there is this idea and feeling I get from the joy fueling persistence and the need to keep going almost like a, a repetition. And what I really appreciate about these pieces, um, even though they're prose and, and not poetry, they have this repetition going that brings that out over and over again, kind of like th this cycle of, I think exactly in my reading, what you were describing right there of making those impacts with others in community, in connection, in relation, and then repeating and going through a cycle, accepting the ups and downs, which of course is a very environmentally influenced uh, style I, I've always appreciated in your writing. And seeing that translate to prose is extremely moving when you have lines like, can cumulative impacts change this trajectory? And then we come back over and over to asking that question in different ways, asking about cumulative um, approaches to dealing with problems, to processing that anxiety and to finding hope. And then we end off, of course, in kind of answer to that with the line, cumulative impacts can and must be turned around in the right direction at the end. I was hoping you might be able to talk about stylistically bringing in these poetic elements, um, things like repetition, which I don't think we get to see quite enough of in prose writing. Uh, that's something I'm just personally uh, really attracted to because it brings in those sort of cycles and repetitions that I feel like are a very environmentally influenced or ecologically influenced stylistic choice. Uh, would you be able to kind of expand on, on how you went about that um, in, in the Blueberry River piece? But also, of course, we have repetition as well in, in the Burnaby Mountain piece, uh, bringing that through too from your poetic practice into uh, your prose writing. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I want to just step back a little bit and say that 
people sometimes ask me, how do you keep going or where do you get your energy and all that? And I, I say, well, you know, there's this idea that the economy, like if you read the newspapers or listen to the news, that the economy is the most important thing. And actually it isn't, <laughs> you know, like, I'm sorry, there's a bigger, more powerful system yes. and that's the earth, you know, <laughs> remember the earth, you yeah. know, the ground that we're standing on, you know, <laughs> like, hello. Um, and so that seasonal aspect, like, you know, as long as the river keeps flowing, I have to keep going as well, right? Like, you, you know, spring comes, summer comes, winter comes, and then spring comes back, right? So we learn a lot through that seasonal repetition and that cycling through, right? And each cycle brings like a new depth or a new layer or a new story to the story that keeps um, changing, but also remaining the same. You know, I remember Lee Miracle telling the story about her uh, grandfather, Chief Dan George, telling her he had caught her in a lie and he... He said, you know, tell, okay, but instead of punishing her, he was like, okay, tell me that story again. But, but he told her a story and then he had her tell it back the same but different. And so that thing of being the same and different at the same time, like that poetry is really good for that. <laughs> you know, like being able to hold contradiction, um, being able to hold um, just like mystery, right? Uh, the unfathomable. And so um, in terms of repetition, like in that blueberry piece, there's a scaling up, you know, a scaling down to like the little blueberry and then a scaling up to the planet Earth, which is also like a round blue globe, right? And I think I'm not doing that in a kind of conscious technique way, but I'm just kind of listening and following where the energy takes me. So I've always worked very intuitively, I think, as a poet. And that's not to say that you don't have to do your craft and like sometimes too much repetition isn't a good thing. Like you have to find the right balance. Um, but like listening for it and kind of feeling for it, I think is really important. So, and yes, I think there's um, a stubbornness or a persistence that is important that, um, you know, we can learn from nature itself. You know, you cut down a forest and what happens? It grows back, you know? Um, and if you stop cutting it down, it'll grow back bigger. <laughs> so like I was up in the Peace Valley in an area that had been clear cut. Um, and a year later, like the, the, shrubs and the bushes were like as tall as me and a little taller already so there's so much we can learn from nature's resilience if we just pay attention right so that that always gives me energy but that is not a free pass it's not okay to just like keep cutting down things and destroying them when you don't even understand the complexity of what's there so I've been reading Suzanne Simard's book Finding the Mother Tree and just you know like following her journey of learning how the trees are connected underground through mycorrhizal mats and how they actually cooperate and feed each other nutrients and you know there's a lot in a forest that people could learn from and uh, similar maybe principles that help uh, a community to survive right and it's funny because I grew up in the city of Calgary and you know not very connected to the land if you threw me in the middle of a forest I wouldn't survive I don't have a lot of those outdoor skills but um, we're still part of the land, whether we're in a city or out in the rural areas. And I think just remembering that and feeling gratitude for the air we breathe, for the water we drink, remembering that that water is not courtesy of the pipes, but the water is from somewhere before the pipes, right? And, and remembering that larger um, life force that we're part of. Mm -hmm. That reminder is so powerful, I feel like. It just brings us down to this place of feeling. Uh, this is something I feel like comes up a lot in environmental discourse and in activism in, in general is 
following a certain kind of intuition informed by awareness and informed by that, um, for lack of a better word, observation. Mm -hmm. Like we uh, started off talking here is talking about bearing witness and following that in an intuitive way and following those feelings leads to, um, I feel like, a lot of activists' first engagement with wanting to be active, with standing up against injustice, and doing that in a variety of ways. That brings me to the Burnaby Mountain piece that you started us off with today, where it follows this, again, very wonderfully poetic rhythm. We have nice, uh, short, one-line um, sentences that are their own paragraph, almost as if they're a stanza. And then we go into these larger flowing bits. And then right past the middle, we get to this list. And it is a call to action that kind of wakes you up from having that inkling, that first intuitive feeling, and, and really, really getting to connect on that emotional level with what you're talking about from the start and building and building until you smack us with this list and it's one after the other things we can and should do and it doesn't take us out of it it feels like it reinforces it and I feel like that is a very intuitive flow of style where it goes seamlessly from this bearing witness into how to take action. And then we come right back to these larger blocks where we get some real deep background before wrapping up with these beautiful lines that go one line, two lines, two lines, one word. And that is something that made me think of how so many activists today, uh, especially I'm thinking of my generation, the generation younger than me, the generations above me, who have been doing this work for, for longer than I've been on this earth, have engaged in a variety of very creative ways of approaching environmental activism uh, and a wide range of progressive activism. And we're seeing more and more of these creative engagements with social issues, with the, these big issues that need addressing, that need these calls to actions. And there is a directness in the uh, creative interpretation of that, which I don't think even five or 10 years ago, most people were seeing in that way. And of course, you've been doing this for more than that time. And I wanted to ask you about how You've been taking the practice of your writing, poetry, and prose, and using artistic beauty as a way of propelling activism in concert with, of course, the direct actions uh, that you take with that um, as kind of another layer, and how that's changed for you over the many years that you've been engaging in this type of discourse. 
Hmm, that's a huge question. Um, I'm going to get at it in little bite-sized pieces, I think. Um, so, you know, uh, Kaya George, I was at a meeting the other day, and she was quoting, uh, I think it's Tony Cade Bambera, the writer, um, that the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And I love that quote because there is room in there for everybody. Um, many years ago, in my first book of poetry, uh, it was called Monkey Puzzle. It was edited by Claire Harris, an African-Canadian poet in um, Calgary. A pretty weird place, or not weird place, but a hard place, I think, for her to live. But she lived there and did amazingly. Um, but Claire cautioned me, uh, this is like in the late 90s now, uh, to not let people call me an activist um, because it would be easier to dismiss me, I think, uh, once you're labeled an activist. Somehow you have to do all the work and everybody else doesn't. <laughs> and so, like, so to not just, I mean, I and, and, you know, I don't think I followed that advice very well, to be honest. <laughs> but I was kind of like, I don't really care what you call me. I just want the work to get done. <laughs> you know, like, there's a lot of work that clearly needs to be done. Let's do it. Um, and so... I think there can be a danger of, of being kind of righteous or, or sort of like, and I don't, that's not the place that I'm coming from all in all of this. Like I see it more like housework, like this house is a mess. We have to clean it up, you know, like, and we all have different pieces to do in, in that, um, that care if the house is our earth. Right. Um, and we're making the mess worse, not better. Uh, unfortunately through um, lots of, extractive projects, for instance. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a role in sort of policy making. There's a role for um, kind of the unpleasant work of lobbying politicians, for instance. I shouldn't say unpleasant, but like, you know, different people have different gifts. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily my gift, but I, I do think that like it's an ecosystem. Everybody has a different kind of... Um, skill or um, talent to contribute. So I think if we're lucky, we get to use the skills that we're comfortable with and the ones that we enjoy um, in the service of a greater um, well-being or a collective good. And so um, to think about beauty, I think it's one of the uh, things in the toolkit, but it's not the only thing, right? Like there can be um, so many other things as well and and beauty certainly has a role in it um but so does ugliness right like looking at that clear cut it breaks my heart there's nothing beautiful about it and yet i still have to find some way to uh refuse to ignore it uh to not look away from it um and so you know um i think time is helpful because that moment of the clear cut is just devastating but you go back to that clear cut a year later or two years later and depending on whether it's allowed to grow or whether it's been further policed you know it will show you kind of what it's doing and and there's a lot of learning uh that can happen from just staying with a place over a long time um yeah i don't like how people change. I don't know. I don't, I wish I knew how, how social change or cultural change happens. Cause you know, it's not like there's a formula that kind of like a plus B and then you get C like, it's not like that. It's like a chemistry or a, a kind of a magical 
journey, I guess. Like there have been times, for example, I think in 2020, before COVID hit, when there was all of that uh, with Suetin solidarity across Canada, um, uh, you know, like I, I was just up at the Unistoten Healing Center uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, spending some time there um, cooking and witnessing. And um, my focus has always been with the water, uh, or not always, but over the last decade or two, um, paying attention to the waterways and, you know, how they connect us, what we have to learn from them, and, you know, water being one of the best teachers. So to talk about that, not to say it's an activist way or um, a poet's way, but just a human way of, of relating to that which is inside of us, which is also outside of us. And so, for example, when I live in Calgary, I'm drinking the Bow River. I'm part of that watershed physically, chemically, compositionally, like literally, right? I'm not being poetic or romantic or any of that. But like if you were to um, test my blood chemistry in Calgary versus say in Tokyo, you'd be able to tell that I was in a different watershed because of the chemicals in the water and the mineral compositions and all of that. So, so we physically are part of this earth. We're not separate from it, <laughs> but the way we're kind of taught and um, kind of uh, inculcated into this sort of separation is a really dangerous thing. And, and so that concept of Natsamat that's in the Burnaby mountain piece, that's from Coast Salish elders, and that's a reminder that we're part of the land, that we're part of the water. Um, that sense of interrelatedness is is not just related to humans, but animals, plants, like all of life, right, all of creation. And that can be a lot to take in, I think, for people who aren't used to thinking that way. Um, but it can be really something that feeds your spirit a lot, too, right? Um, I was, a, you know, a fairly introverted, introverted kid, um, and I enjoyed spending time with trees, you know, like, um, not in some sort of, like, really obvious way, but it was something that gave me, I think I would say solace, I, I would say that there were times in my life growing up as a kid in Calgary, which was pretty disconnected, as I said, but just sometimes even then, like, that the trees gave me comfort in a time of grief or in a time of stress or anxiety, and you know, that sense of reciprocity of trying to take care of the trees that take care of us is is part of um, what pushes me. And it's, of course, way beyond trees. <laughs> but that's that's one place to start. That is such a wonderful place to kind of propel us off into the world from these words. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time here. But that as a place to think about leaping out and kind of shifting our paradigm as we do, uh, as we go into the world. And by that, I mean, literally, after this, I'm going to go outside on a hike. Yay! In the place I am in, on, on unceded silks territory. And having that in my mind, even though these aren't necessarily particularly brand new thoughts, they're fresh of shifting that perspective and holding a place for myself to be open, it is, I think, something that can be thought of as being very poetic. But also, as you're saying, that poetry, that the art of that, that the beauty and the ugly are places we can think of as part of ourselves and doesn't have to be limited to just a poet's hand 
or, or just the activist action, there is so much more of that relationality, which I think is so present in these pieces. And I cannot wait to see in so much more of your work going forward. So thank you so much, Rita, for joining us. Just before we go, um, I wanted to ask uh, if there is anything else you wanted to let folks know about. Yeah, I would encourage everybody to make friends with the rivers and the waterways and the reservoirs where they live. Um, and, um, you know, uh, send those waters some gratitude and uh, look after them the way they're looking after you. Um, how the human and the non-human relate maybe is something that we need a lot of more creative voices maybe helping us to um, articulate and understand. So I look forward to seeing more of that work happening. Um, I, I encourage people to get involved wherever they live, you know, with whatever land and water issues are happening where you live. So thank you so much for having me on your show. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure. That's all for this time. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back in a month with our final episode of the season featuring the incomparable Ariel Twist, she, her, a Neheatu spirit, trans woman author, and multidisciplinary artist who is created to reclaim and harness ancestral magic and memories. Originally from George Gordon First Nation, Saskatchewan, Ariel's award-winning work is renowned right across her immense disciplinary range, and trust me, you don't want to miss that. This podcast is a production of Inspired Word Cafe Society. Our episodes are written, edited, and produced by Shimshan Obadia. Emmett McMillan composed and mixed our theme music and co-produced this episode right along with me. Our podcast logo was created by Mackenzie Ken Shaw, any pronouns, who manages our marketing. Inspired Word Cafe Society is pleased to acknowledge that our podcast is created with the generous financial support of the Canada Council for the Arts, as well as funding provided in part by the City of Kelowna. We'd also like to take this moment to recognize that this is done on the unceded territory of the Sioux Okanagan people, and more importantly, that we are uninvited guests on this land. For more about the Okanagan Nation Alliance, please visit silks.org. That's S-Y-I-L-X dot org. And for more about Inspired Word Cafe, including our upcoming programs and events, please feel free to check out inspiredwordcafe.com and follow us at Inspired Word Cafe on all social media. If you haven't had a chance yet, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really do help. And if you just love our little podcast, feel free to share it with a friend who enjoys all the wonders of the written and spoken word as much as you and me. After all, there's nothing quite like sitting down with someone you care about over a good cuppa and sharing what inspires you. But until then, we'll just say, thanks, thanks for, for stopping, stopping by, by the cafe. cafe.